0: hello and welcome back to the planet optimist my name is david woodford and as always i'm joined by northwood's answer to warren buffett daniel okey for your weekly dose of climate positivity our weekly podcast goes out every friday morning at 6 a.m gmt following our newsletter which goes out monday evenings a perfect way to bookend your week
1: as usual we are here not only to discuss the ways in which we can tackle the issues surrounding climate and environment, but to celebrate the successes of business and entrepreneurs, as we truly believe that this is the best vehicle to champion environmental matters. David, how
0: are you? I'm not too bad. I'm very well. I went to the launch event today down in Wiltshire, which, if you don't know, is in the southwest of England, in the countryside, for a council who've just taken on their first charge of electric vehicles, So that's really, really positive. And they've actually wrapped them in a green wrap, so they could not possibly be more green. Uh, and I think, what, seven hours ago, we found out who our new Prime Minister in the UK is going to be. It's going to be Liz Truss.
1: It, it, is, it is, indeed. Um, our 56th Prime Minister, if I remember correctly, um, it will be our third female Prime Minister.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So great congratulations to the right honourable Liz Truss. Let's hope she you know, tackles you know, inflation and absolutely commits us to, uh, if not bringing Net Zero 2050 forward, at least puts us on the road to meeting that. That's what I want her to do. It
1: definitely has a very uh, very difficult task, but uh, I suppose every single Prime Minister has a very difficult task when they take office. No one takes office in the uh in the nicest of situations do they
0: i I think you know the only one i can think of is is probably blair and brown ones i can think of as blair and brown they both took office during the good times blair obviously having left on a high brown having left in slightly different circumstances but she's got a big job um it remains to be seen what she's going to do with it
1: Mm, absolutely absolutely
0: So Daniel, last week we discussed my industry, we discussed electric cars and how they're far better for the environment than ice ones. This week's episode though is a bit more economics focused, which is certainly more in your ballpark. Although I would say I know more about economics than you do about cars. You know an awful lot about economics.
1: Well, I mean, this by no means an unfair statement, though I'm sure you know more about nuclear fusion than I do about cars. So it's also not a very substantial (laughs) statement, Um, but as we've discussed before, uh, we both have degrees in economics, uh, myself a bachelor's and a master's, and yourself with an MBA, uh, so this should be a a very good discussion, one that I'm sure we will revisit in the future
0: at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I have to add that I haven't actually finished my MBA, but I'm on my way to finishing my MBA, so I don't want to be called a fraud by anyone who's looked on my LinkedIn. But uh, our topic this week focuses on how the free market, entrepreneurs and businesses are the best way to help combat the serious issue of climate change, because this is a huge topic, and you see it constantly bandied around that capitalism is inherently evil. I don't think a system of economics, in this sense, which is just letting people getting on with what they want to do, can inherently be evil. It can obviously lead to evil actions, but it's not in it of itself evil.
1: So can so can other systems. Um, well, yeah, really I just th- th- thought that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it really epitomises uh, what this podcast is about, though. When you when you think about it,
0: it does absolutely. Uh, uh, in lieu of that, Daniel, would you like to hear my weekly Adam Smith quote from uh, the God of Economics up there in the I don't know fiscal heaven, Scotland? Uh, yes. yes, Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> um, I,
1: outside of my Friday night bath, it's the highlight of my week, David. So please do
0: well i know how much you love your ducks and bath bombs so that really is a, a true endorsement and your uh, guinness in the bath which actually is quite a dangerous um dangerous pastime of yours but this week's quote is a nation is not made wealthy by the childish accumulation of shiny metals but enriched by the economic prosperity of its people
1: so be an entrepreneur and not a magpie basically
0: it's really good that uh, your economics degree was on a scholarship, wasn't it? Because it's, you're really getting that value for money. You have no idea. We're about to find out. Last week, I went easy on you because, of course, we mentioned cars are not your strong point. So I didn't ask you your weekly 90-second definition. But this week I will. And it's a bit more of a technical one than the last ones. Are you familiar with the Coase Theorem?
1: It popped up quite a lot during some of my undergraduate lectures. Uh, I am very thankful to Ronald Coase because not only was he an incredible economist, uh, he also funded an eponymous scholarship um, at my alma mater, um, of which you just referenced, um, and I'm very fortunate to have been accepted for, honestly.
0: I guess that shows that uh, hard work pays dividends.
1: (laughs) I do hope there's at least someone out there who gets our occasional peep show reference.
0: Charles would be a fine thing, Daniel
1: a fine thing indeed uh count me in David
0: okay 90 seconds three two one go
1: the coast theorem uh, deals with the issue of negative externalities which is something that we discussed in our first episode on carbon tax and credits uh, it states that if you are able to trade in the face of a given negative externality then it's possible for the market forces the invisible hand to eradicate it by assigning property rights This is provided that there are low transaction costs in non-economical terms. It just means so long as it's not a pain to sort out. This is the main criticism of the theory, and I'm sure we'll get onto that later. And when I say eradicates the externality, what I mean is that both transacting parties arrive at what's known as the Pareto optimal solution. No one party can be made better off following the trade without simultaneously making another party worse off. When property rights are assigned, the parties can bargain and at and the result is better for both of them. Uh, A little fun fact about Coase is that he lived until the age of 102. Um, How did I do?
0: You're exceptionally concise because you've got 35 seconds left.
1: Wow, look at that. And from bad to worse, I'm speaking in
0: verse. So when you say the allocation of property rights, does it matter to whom the rights are assigned? Uh, No, but actually,
1: yes. Uh, in theory it doesn't, but there are a few interesting studies that look into the um, endowment effect. I'm- I love the word endowment. Endowment. It's a very good word. It's a good word. word. Mm. A good word. Um, but I quite enjoy behavioural economics. Uh, I recommend anyone interested in the topic to read the book Nudge by Othala and Sun- Sunstain. Uh, it's great if you want to hear how people in Amsterdam airport manage to convince men to pee in urinals and not on the floor and I'm being serious about that. But sticking with the endowment effect, uh, it is a psychological bias whereby people place more value on something uh, by virtue of having it.
0: So if I had a bar of chocolate and you wanted to buy it from me?
1: Your supply price would be higher than your demand price if you were in my shoes. Uh, The fact you own it means you place more value onto it. So when you assign property rights, the party assigned said rights will likely place a greater value upon it.
0: Okay, so give me... A real world example
1: uh, i can give the example Kos gave himself when he uh, was de- developing the theory uh, so back in the day when people used to listen to the radio though of course radio someone still loves you uh, david <laughs> did you know that today is actually freddie mercury's birthday
0: i, I do you know i didn't as a as a massive massive queen fan i should have known it but i mean absolute legend yeah. memory and blessing and all that but i appreciate the reference Absolutely. Well, occasionally,
1: uh, radio broadcasters would interfere with each other, uh, rather than getting in some regulatory body to regulate the frequencies. Instead, if rights were assigned, i.e. broadcasters of whom had the most to gain from broadcasting on a particular frequency, would pay other broadcasters uh, to stay off their frequency. A Pareto optimal allocation is reached and there is no reason to involve, frankly inefficient, regulatory bodies.
0: So how does this play into the climate change discussion?
1: Uh, In our university lectures, we were given an example of a fisherman and a factory. Uh, So suppose while getting rid of waste, uh, the factory occasionally leaks some pollutants into a river or lake where a fisherman, well, fishes. This is not good because if for sport, uh, the fisherman is not able to catch the fish, which is not going to make him happy. uh, So you can do one of two things, assign property rights to the business or to the fisherman. Um, If you assign it to the business and the fisherman, No, assigned to the business and the fisherman has to pay to fish there. However, the business then has an incentive not to pollute because they want the fisherman to remain happy and to keep coming back. Right. Uh, It's additional source of revenue, essentially. If the property rights are assigned to the fisherman, uh, then he is compensated for this negative externality or opportunity cost. Uh, He might not be able to brag on social media about catching a large carp, but hey, he's compensated for it. It's not a very applicable example, but I think it describes it well.
0: And that then shows how it doesn't matter in theory where the rights are allocated. Exactly. So what other arguments are there for free markets and business to be championing the cause against climate change?
1: Well, I have some statistics for you, and I'm actually going to quiz you. Uh, A while back, I came across uh, Bloomberg communist Noah Smith. Uh, He made a point about the strong link between carbon emissions in former Soviet countries and their transition to liberated and prosperous economies.
0: Well, capitalist countries are reducing their greenhouse gas emissions significantly more than non-capitalist economies, surely? Uh,
1: They really are, and this is where your test begins. So digging through some data uh, from the mid-20th century to the fall of the USSR, CO2 emissions grew at about 4.8% annually, with the USSR's emissions growing from 12% globally to 16% globally, uh, which is very significant. However, when they were freed, uh, guess how much Estonia's CO2 emissions decreased?
0: Within the first year or in the 31 years since the USSR dissolved? Uh, Since the dissolution. 75%. 39.4%. Oh, sorry, I was being overly optimistic. Well, you
1: say that. What about Ukrainians?
0: Well, Ukraine has a lot of nuclear power, but I didn't know it had the nuclear power beforehand, obviously Chernobyl.
1: Famously, yes.
0: (laughs) Very famously. So did you say 35% for Estonia? Uh, 39.4. I'm going to say 42.5. 70.4 really i see. i got them the wrong way around that's very impressive yes
1: yes it it really is um i wasn't actually expecting it to be that high but it's it's incredibly interesting to see how such a significant decrease after the liberation
0: but what can that be attributed to can't simply be attributed to the fact that people can now buy and sell freely
1: I appreciate that an argument against such stellar progress is simply technological innovation. Uh, Of course, you can only really get this through free markets anyway, so it's sort of a moot point in my opinion. Uh, And I'm sure we'll revisit this idea shortly. But to get a deeper understanding, uh, I checked out the emission growth of other heavily left-leaning countries. I won't call them communists, though, because of their failures. The socialists who once praised them for being socialist uh, now claim some of them are not. So out of Venezuela, Laos, China and Vietnam, can you guess what the smallest increase in carbon emission output is across the same time period?
0: Well, since my gappy in 2016, 2015 slash 16, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Vietnam. And they are very technologically advanced compared to, I think, what you probably think of a a kind of Indochina country as being. So I'm going to pick them as the, the top, Having seen the smallest increase, Venezuela, of course, the poster child for how not to do economics has got to be the worst, surely.
1: Well, so the smallest increase of the four countries um, is 59.3%. increase. Um, do you want to guess the greatest carbon increase? And don't be shy with this number.
0: Oh, oh no, four hundred percent Venezuela. Higher. Higher? Higher. Eight hundred. Higher. Blimey. Fifteen hundred. Nine hundred
1: and twenty seven percent. My God. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
0: Yep. And who and who is that?
1: I believe it's China. I believe it's China. Uh, which probably is i early. mean that
0: does make sense you know the meteoric rise since since 1991. Uh, yeah i mean how many how, many, how much the, i mean how much has the population of china grown since then it must be you know half a billion at least
1: and not 927 percent that's yeah it's been high growth but yeah that's uh that's something um but sticking going back to uh former soviet countries um an interesting article from the Wall Street Journal quoted a claim that 10% of deaths in Hungary uh, back in 1990 was directly related to pollution. Uh, communist countries would have smog that burned the eyes and made it tough to see, uh, with cars even using
0: their headlights uh, in the middle of the day. It does not surprise me. I mean, the acid rain and, and pollution that we had in cities before we introduced catalytic converters and unleaded petrol in the 80s was was massive. And Let's face it: you know, the former Soviet bloc, Soviet Union, and Yugoslav countries were not famed for keeping up to date with technology. So that does not surprise me one bit. So, so when there are limited property rights, what incentive do people have to produce more efficiently and with consideration? Let's return to our Adam Smith quote
1: uh, from a few weeks back. Uh, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but for their regard for their own self-interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but, their th- but to their self-love, and never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages.
0: Maybe we should say that at the start of every podcast, so that we can really embed it in people's minds. I think we should. It's a, it's a very good quote. Um our mantra. mantra.
1: Yes. Um, and But looking at the data, we can clearly see that investment into renewable energy has totally up, overshadowed that of fossil fuels, fuels by almost 150 billion US dollars. The capitalists look for the best way to use their capital. That's the point. So they have an incentive to innovate, reinvest and make their profits greater while also benefiting the rest of society. The argument of the left in terms of the environment rests on the idea that fossil fuels are so efficient and productive that to wean ourselves off of it, we have to have government regulation and control, which is just nonsense. Um, Look at Musk. Not only is he reinvesting his capital and if not for some of the controversies on the sideline, which are either funny or scary, depending on your viewpoint, uh, he is also listening to the market. This is where we as consumers come in. Uh, We can vote with our money. This is often easier said than done. Uh, For instance, it isn't always economically viable for us to change our spending habits. Sometimes these things do cost a bit more, but revolution is not the answer. Steady and efficient growth and change is how we fix these problems. By an invisible hand, not a forceful one. A really great example I came across is that of a microbrewery.
0: That's not because you love beer, is it?
1: It's about 5% of the reason, Uh, (laughs) but aluminium uh, used to package cans will have little over 10% less metal than cans half a century ago. Uh, This is because of innovations in the market. If you choose not to use the more efficient cans as a um, brewer yourself, your competitors will, and this will allow them to lower their prices and steal your customers. Again, the invisible hand at
0: play. Interesting stat for you. Over half, which is 56% of all forested land within the U.S. is privately owned. Uh, The U.S. has seen the amount of forest increase over the years. And and despite the fact that 90% of the wood harvested in the U.S. comes from private forests, the total timber stock on private land has doubled since the mid 20th century.
1: That is indeed very, not just very interesting, but also very encouraging. Um, But I'd be a bad free marketeer if I didn't consider every aspect of the argument, if only others uh, did the same. So I did some research and came across an article that tries to argue against using the free market as a way to combat climate change. It wasn't The Guardian, was it? No prizes there, but yes. Uh, I don't believe it's behind a paywall, so you can read it below if, uh, if you want. After complaining that capitalism is bad and somehow managed to shoehorn in a reference to insider trading when discussing what a market failure is, uh, the author rightly points out that there is a constant communication between supply and demand. A Price is set and demand either increases, decreases, or remains the same as consumers vote with their money, essentially, as we've uh, discussed earlier, they decide whether they want to consume the good or service um, based off of that new price. The author then says that you know the business that sets the price, and they use energy businesses as an example, will only give a narrow range of prices, and none of these convey the social costs of the environmental damage.
0: I haven't read the article, uh, but I can tell now it's already missing the mark. What about taxes? What about the opportunity costs of switching to another cleaner method of production and innovating and investing that way? as we've already discussed earlier and discussed dozens and dozens of times. And what about from the demand side, where consumers are rewarded for using cleaner energy? Use a smart meter and warm your house more efficiently, buy an electric vehicle and save money. Almost double, as we discussed last week with your spreadsheet on petrol.
1: Preaching to the choir, David. Uh, the article is <laughs> full of doom and gloom. It's suggesting that the free market is the reason for wildfire fires and destruction. What I love is that they then go on to discuss how incomplete communication misleads us consumers into buying products laden with hidden costs. Which sounds very free market to me.
0: How are you going to get more efficient communication from one central regulatory body than directly from consumer to business?
1: No, you can't. Uh, they also mentioned that the market won't provide public goods, such as nutrient recycling, soil formation and oxygen creation that are critical to the environment.
0: Surely they do, especially with properly defined property rights. Not, not directly, but indirectly. The point of a market isn't to deliver public goods, but I can definitely see an argument suggesting that it could be a side effect of certain practices.
1: Yeah, and that would be a positive externality, absolutely. Um, a farmer has greater soil quality and as well as a consumer of their potatoes, I love potatoes, David, the ecosystem gets stronger as a result. Uh, healthier surrounding flowers, greater pollination, greater movement of birds and seeds, more trees. I mean, come on, Like they say that the market doesn't give a profit incentive for these public goods to be created. I agree. I totally agree. At least not directly, but indirectly, as you say, absolutely. Uh, these are just surface level arguments. The article finishes by suggesting that the government knows more about your toaster than you do, and there are hidden environmental costs from using it. They say a good government is one that believes in science and that they can regulate industries so that these costs are more apparent. You get into massive issues this way through regulatory capture, even greater asymmetric information than what you'd get from the businesses regulating
0: themselves, and many more." Well, there you go. The free market, as we've always said, is the way to champion the environmental cause. Listen, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this week. It's been a bit of an economics-heavy episode, but we love economics. Economics is like science. You can't really argue against it. We've worked out over the last 350 years what works, what allocates resources effectively to the general populace. And ultimately, it always comes down to one thing. The free market is the original and fairest and best innovator and allocator. And ultimately, will be the way that we combat this climate crisis hear here. Don't forget to subscribe, follow us on Instagram, like this and share it with absolutely everyone you know. They will be utterly thrilled that you're taking part in the climate movement. And that's us done for this week. Thank you very much. This is a goodbye from me. Goodbye.